0: this morning 1st Peter chapter 3 verses 18
1: through 22 1st Peter 3:18 through 22 For
0: Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected
1: to him. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that we hear
0: from your word this day. And our prayer is that you fulfill your promise, that your word be effective, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword dividing in our thoughts and intents, our motivations, revealing the secrets of our hearts. For the believer that our hearts' secrets revealed would lead us to repentance and a renewed pursuit of holiness for those outside of Christ, the revelation that they are lost without him. Lead them to repentance and faith. Grant now, By your might and power, the work of your spirit, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is writing to believers who are facing persecution. And soon they're going to face worse persecution. He's both warning them and encouraging them. In fact, one church historian notes that in the first three centuries of the church, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. That is something to which we are unaccustomed. We don't think in those terms. The text we look at this morning echoes in some ways, sounds a bit like uh, First Timothy 3.16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. And so we here find these great
1: verities of the faith. Christ's death, burial, resurrection,
0: planted right here in the middle of texts about our suffering. Why? Can you imagine doing evangelism in a context where you could not make any promises to people that things would go better for them on earth, but if they believed
1: what you, what you are preaching, they'd be risking their lives. Does that say anything
0: to us about our evangelistic message and methods?
1: How often have we actually been guilty of misleading people about the nature of this salvation? Peter is encouraging us in the face of suffering.
0: Now it's intriguing that he ends the previous section, verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. That sounds good, right? That makes sense.
1: You ought not put yourself in a position that you suffer for doing evil. Chapter four, verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with
0: the same way of thinking For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, here are two excitations, both about suffering, both to the Christian about their understanding and their behavior, and buried between the two, placed right there, the text we see this morning. How does Peter encourage us when we face suffering? My friend, we need this reminder Safety has not been the norm for Christians in the largest part of Christian history. Safety has not been the norm. In fact, it is not the norm for a huge number of our brothers and sisters even today. See, our problem is we see suffering as the exception in following Christ. And the text of the New Testament, if anything, tells us this is not the exception, it's more like the rule. And to show this, Peter is compelled to teach us here that it is through judgment and suffering that Christ has saved us. And if Christ has suffered, if Christ has endured the suffering through the judgment of God in the cross... Why is it that we would think we are somehow exempt from, or somehow God's upset with us, if we actually
1: suffer for the faith? Consider first the pardoning Christ,
0: verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. And I love how Peter sets this up. How does he end the 17th verse? It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then he pivots, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Wait a minute, Peter, are you saying that Jesus did bad?
1: The righteous him, for the unrighteous us, that he
0: might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. This is the third time in this short letter that Peter references the death of Christ. Chapter 1 verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Chapter 2. Verse 21, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And now the text this morning, and here the emphasis is on Christ
1: as victor.
0: Now, theologians, by the way, I, I consider myself a theologian, small t, lowercase t. All right, Guys with capital T have lots of letters after their names. But all of us have to, in some sense, be theologians if we're going to take seriously the Christian faith. We have to think through and consider what the Lord reveals to us. And in studying the Atoning work of Christ on the cross. What does Christ do in his death on the cross? There are views and theories of the atonement that develop. Now, we can use biblical words. It was an atonement. It was a propitiation. It was for reconciliation. You can go down the biblical terms. It was for forgiveness. All of those things are true. The primary theme seems to be, and I don't think this is even questionable, what is called vicarious substitution. Christ dies voluntarily as a substitute, standing in our place, taking upon Himself our sin and our punishment for that sin. But that theme also has another sub-theme, the theme of Christ as the Conqueror. Persecuted, suffering Christians need to remember both the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. His patient suffering shows them the meekness with which they're to respond when they're interrogated. His glorious triumph will give them courage to face their accusers. Undergirding both the meekness and boldness of Christians is the saving work of Christ. This must be central in our thinking. Christ is the pardoning Christ. Christ died for sins. He suffered once for sins. Please note the emphasis here. Once for sins. This was what set the reformers apart from the Roman Catholic Church because in the theology of the Mass of the Catholic view of the Lord's table of transubstantiation was the idea, and literally this is said in the literature, that every time the Mass is celebrated it is a bloodless repetition of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Reformers read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and their response was a profound "Uh uh-uh.
1: Now that sounds more noble in Latin, by the way. They refused this, saying, You
0: must not teach that Christ is sacrificed over and over and over and over again. Christ dies once
1: for sin done the whole theme the great book
0: of hebrews great parts of that he did it once he did it once he did it once he did it once and he sat down and he sat down because he was done because he did it once christ died not just for sin in general, but for sinners to bring us to God. Here is the vicarious nature of it. By His death, Christ won life for His own. This is reconciliation to God through the suffering and death of His Son. Now, Christian, I emphasize this because sometimes we almost act as though what Christ has done isn't actually enough. you got to add something to this. And if we're not extraordinarily careful,
1: we're going to make ourselves in some way co-saviors. Now, I know, Christian, we had a prayer of confession just a moment ago. And we are to confess our sins. And our sins should grieve us, right? You ought not be comfortable with your sin.
0: Now you see, if you're the Lord's, I'm not too concerned that you're comfortable with it because the Spirit of God has a way of dealing with that. But you see, the problem becomes, brothers and sisters, we, we then start trying to figure out ways to... Show the Lord we're sorry and we won't do it again or we'll work harder or whatever. And we,
1: in essence, try to become co-redeemers. Let me explain something to you here. The Lord is not savingly impressed with any of your promises. Now, is it okay to have resolutions? You bet. Is it
0: okay in yourself to say, I am going to do X or Y or I'm not going to do this? That's that's lovely, my friend. But don't for a moment assign to either the intent, much less the execution of that, as somehow saving.
1: He loves you in Christ, full stop, period. Your sins have been paid for, full stop. No commas, no semicolons, no footnotes. He has
0: died once for sinners to bring us to God. Further, Christ truly died. Truly raised, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. This to me echoes, and this is so good to me, here is Peter saying it one way, Paul says it another. Paul will say in Romans 1, 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness
1: by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. My friend, why do I
0: stop and camp here? Just because it's Palm Sunday? No, but that's as good a reason as any.
1: Here we are at the beginning of celebrating that final week of Christ's life.
0: We must take time to ponder as we go here, what's the meaning of his death? He has died for sinners. Now, when I hear the foolishness, in fact, some years ago, our local newspaper would often run articles from a religion professor over at MSU. And this fellow was actually a member of a local Baptist church. He taught Sunday school even. And he publicly, repeatedly, and in print, denied the miracles of Christ, and was not sure if Christ's death on the cross was necessary for salvation, or if Jesus truly physically rose from the dead. Such doubts may be fashionable in the context of the university. They are an incalculable and inexcusable evil
1: in a church. This is damning to people's lives. Every year,
0: you get ready for it. Somebody's going to do something on the resurrection in the popular media today. It is exhausting to the point of infuriating. I saw an interview with a fellow who was a leader in some religious quasi-Christian group, ostensibly. Well, what would happen to the Christian faith if they actually found the tomb of Jesus with his bones in it? And his response, you know, it wouldn't make any difference at all. I know Jesus is risen in my heart. God have
1: mercy on us all. If Christ be not raised, we're a bunch of fools. We have wasted time and countless resources. Should have stayed home. Christ, the pardoning Christ, for sinners
0: truly raised from the dead, having truly died. Second part, the preaching Christ, verses 19 to 20. Now, let me you know you got Peter here. He's looking back at another wicked and dangerous time. He looks all the way back to the flood. Now let me acknowledge something here on the front end. This text is undoubtedly one of, if not the most difficult ones in the entirety of Scripture to understand. I take hope in this, Martin Luther said this, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means.
1: I find comfort there. There's actually over 40
0: interpretations of this text. So are you ready for the count now? Number 40. I'm not going to do that to you because I wouldn't want to do it to myself.
1: They all boil down to about five. I'm going to run through these quickly just so you know I paid attention.
0: Okay? First, that between the death of Jesus and his resurrection, he descended into either Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the abode of the dead, or Tartarus, which is a Greek word somewhat equivalent, to preach the gospel to either fallen angels or to the lost before the flood with a view to offering a second opportunity for salvation. In other words, those who died in the flood, he may have been coming back between his death and resurrection to offer them a chance. That's been one. Number two, in the interim between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Christ descended into Sheol to announce judgment on those who died in the flood. Third, A descent took place at the time proposed by the first two views, but the purpose was to announce judgment upon fallen angels. Fourth, aren't you relieved that I didn't try to get all 40? I can tell by the way you're looking at me now. All right, number four, a descent took place in the same time period outlined above. Jesus, however, went to paradise, the upper story of Sheol, where the Old Testament saints awaited the blood of Christ. Christ descended in order to lead those Old Testament saints to heaven. Okay? Five. There wasn't any descent into hell at all. The reference is to Christ preaching by means of the Spirit through Noah to those who perished in the flood. Now, of those... Two seem more likely. One, the most. I think it is possible, maybe that there's a variation here. That on number three, that Christ makes a declaration to those imprisoned spirits, fallen angels, in his resurrection and ascension. That he, it, it's kind of an echoing of uh, Colossians two: "You who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together." with him having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Maybe. I actually think the final interpretation, the most likely, and it puts me in the same camp as Augustine and that seems like comfortable company, um, I think what he's teaching here simply is this. He is warning them of trouble to come, and it will seem to them like a flood. There's going to be the horror of this incredible suffering. And the thing that would stand out in the mind of Peter as he looks back under the inspiration of the Spirit was the Lord destroying the entire world And so he does what a good Trinitarian would do. Christ did proclaim to the spirits would be now in prison. They formerly didn't obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark's being prepared. It is to me reflective of 1 Peter chapter 1 that we just read earlier how the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be Uh, Theirs searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what time, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You do understand
1: the Son of God did not begin to exist at Bethlehem. Oh, somebody nod. You do get that, right? The Son of God
0: eternally exists. We serve a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father unbegotten, the Son begotten, not made from eternity, and the Spirit proceeding from both the Father and the Son. That is good, sound, Nicene orthodoxy. Who knows I might take on preaching on the Trinity at some point that said what I'm driving at here is that in the days of Noah as Noah preached Christ present as the member of the Trinity through the work of the Spirit working through the preaching of Noah announcing to this world judgment and nobody listened but eight souls How does this help? Well, it, it strengthens us in the face of suffering. It assures us of the greatness of Christ. He's not bound by space and time. He is with us anytime and anywhere. It's better to obey and suffer than disobey and be cast into eternal prison. It's better to be in the minority and saved than in the majority and lost. And
1: that leads us to the third We have had the pardoning Christ,
0: the preaching Christ. Now let me show you the professing Christian. Verse 21, he starts talking about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to Him. Peter is very impressed with the idea of the importance of baptism. Now, Why does Peter here talk about baptism? Is there anything in the text that has to do with water? Please tell me you haven't slept between the previous point and this one. We we, we had a flood, right? Now, just so we're clear, I'm of that group who believes in a
1: literal flood. Literally on the whole earth, deep enough to cover up everything. I know that makes me a clown to many, that's all right. We shall see when the judgment comes. But from that picture of the flood, Peter transitions to talk about baptism. Now. That's peculiar in some ways. We had a baptism this morning.
0: Didn't feel like a flood. I think Greg got his shoes wet. But um,
1: none of you felt threatened, I'm assuming, right? You were not concerned about the room filling.
0: I don't think Peter for a moment is teaching us that baptism is
1: salvific. He's making a connection. How does baptism correspond to
0: this flood scenario? The waters of the flood were a judgment from God. The waters of baptism symbolize the grave and death judgment. We don't think about it in those terms typically. I mean, we are happy. We're delighted. We were delighted to baptize Bridget today, right? We love to see that because the picture there of new birth, of new life, of confession, identifying with Christ. But part of it is supposed to be sobering. It's the picture symbolically of being with Jesus, united with him in his dying, where he is immersed, if you will, under the judgment of Almighty God for us. We die with him. We are buried with him. We are raised to life with him. Everything's in him, and baptism is the
1: visible representation of that. Mm. The ark floated on
0: the water and saved Noah and his family through the waters. And Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan had a little sermon he did, not a little. Puritans never did little sermons. An ark for all of God's Noahs. And he was preaching about Christ. Noah and his family are saved out of the judgment. Christ accepts our judgment. We're immersed in the water to symbolize that union. He was immersed in the actual judgment for our sake. Our baptism is in the identification with him and what he's done for
1: us. The pledge of a good conscience. You know,
0: one of the reasons you came to faith in Christ because you had a troubled conscience.
1: Right? You realized you were a sinner and you recognized your guilt.
0: And I don't mean just the feeling of guilt. See, it's possible to feel guilty and not be guilty it's also likely to not feel guilty and be guilty. The gospel comes to us, and one of the things it shouts to us is, you are guilty! In the hopes that it stirs the conscience, I have sinned against God. I've got to answer to Him. Baptism then is this picture. I'm His. I'm united with Christ. I'm buried with Christ. I'm raised to new life. My conscience is clear. Those who reject the gospel put themselves under the judgment that will come when Christ comes. Those who are united to Christ are saved by the same promise that delivered Noah and his family. Baptism is an outward way of saying, I trust you, Father, to apply the death of Christ to me for my sins, to bring me through death and judgment to everlasting life. There is no danger of condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ
1: Jesus. Is this your hope? You know, we got into a habit in many of our churches of kind of bifurcating this thing, turning
0: it into, well, you come forward and you profess your faith and that's your profession and then later we'll do baptism it's kind of two things. And the reality is, folks, baptism was always meant to be
1: the public profession. We ought not treat it like it's small or doesn't matter. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it is that public declaration. Now,
0: we're transitioning now in these moments, into more of the triumph. Now you see how he ends his text. This is such a glorious thing. Who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. My friend, through his suffering, through accepting the judgment due us, he now reigns. And because of that reign, we live. And what we do today... (coughs) We we have done the first thing we're called to do, if you will, in the drama of displaying salvation, and the drama is written for us. We don't get to make it up ourselves. First drama, baptism, death, burial, resurrection, judgment, salvation, death,
1: life, entrance into the kingdom. Yes. Here's the next part. Same thing. This is not a once thing. This celebrates a once for all thing,
0: what Christ has done. But this is what we do regularly to renew our
1: covenant and renew our thinking and remind us why we're here. We celebrate the body and the blood. Of our Savior. Now I'm going to ask the deacons who are going to help serve if you'd go ahead and come forward at this time
0: while I give a little further instruction. Then we'll have prayer. First of all, if you're not a member here, do not panic. You don't have to run away. If you are a baptized believer, In the Lord Jesus Christ, this is for you. We're glad to have you as part of the family here, if that's who you are, but we'll talk about that later. We're not going to deal with that at the moment. This is for believers. Now, friend, I can't emphasize enough, if you don't know Jesus, please, if you're not a Christian, this is not for you. The Scripture says You do this without knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. You are eating and drinking judgment. You're asking God to judge you. You do not want to make that your prayer. Oh, thrice holy God, please judge me. You don't want to do that. But my friend, if you're his, this is for you. This is to celebrate reality. The reality of one who died in your place, the reality of he who shed his blood. Nothing changes in these elements. They are what they are. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time our juice looks a little feeble this morning, it tastes fine. Don't panic. Nobody tried to turn water to wine or wine to water only got halfway there. Um, I wouldn't say anything, but somebody's going to ask me about that just as sure as the world, so I'd rather just say it now and get it out. In a little bit, what we'll do is we'll pass the bread and Trying to do this a little more effectively let you all know some of the deacons will start serving at the back and coming this way and some from the front moving that way and meeting in the middle lord willing all right so those in the back don't panic if they start serving back there and working from the back forward we're doing a little differently we ask you to take the bread hold it till everyone is served we'll take it together that time will be clear same thing with the cup we ask that you take it and hold it till everyone's served now If you're the least bit nervous, we have sealed cups and bread out here on the counter. If you've got a gluten problem, those are gluten-free. You're welcome to slip out and grab one of those if that's what you need. But my friend, in light of this word from our God, our pardoning and preaching Christ and our declaration, we do this today because we're His. Let's give thanks and rejoice in the good gift. Christ has given. Father, we pray that we could say with Judson as he spoke these final words on earth, I go with gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Lord, I pray we would be able to go with gladness knowing that we are strong in him. Not our strength, His. Father, my prayer is that some who do not know Jesus have been brought to faith or are close now and ready to talk to somebody about their eternal soul. And Lord, we rejoice that we can gather as the people of God, as the saints gathered in this place, and celebrate the Lord's table together. Father, we confess we are not worthy. This is not about what we have done, but solely about what Christ has done. May we rest in his giving of his life for us. For it is in Jesus' name that we
1: pray. Amen.